cue the intro music, I guess. <laughs> ding a ling a ling a ling a ding ding ding. Today on Cheap Talk. <laughs> So, Jeff, last time we talked a little bit about COVID-19 and what we might be expecting to see in a sort of post-COVID world. And we talked a little bit about the liberal order. I was thinking today we could be a little bit more abstract, a little bit more sort of theoretical and, and think about something called rationality. Some people might say you are a rationalist. Is that, is that a characterization? Now, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to kind of put labels on people and no one ever really likes to do that. But having said that, I think a lot of people would say, Jeff, you're, a, you're, you're sort of a rationalist. Is that something you would agree with? And, and if so, what does that mean to you? I mean, I, I think it's better to be a rationalist than an irrationalist. So I don't know. I'm, I'm comfortable with this. When we talk about rationalism, rationalist approaches to international relations, they kind of start from this assumption that people are generally purposive in their behavior or intentionalist in their behavior. That is that they, are, they have some goal and they're trying to pursue it. And so that's kind of what I see as kind of the baseline of rationalist assumptions or for rational theories of international relations. I think in general, states are probably exceed that bar for rationality or leaders exceed that bar for rationality. That is, um, they make a reasonable attempt to use the available information to reach some conclusion that leads them closer to their goal, that they analyze information they get in a way that is at least recognizable to others, right? That this isn't totally an internal exercise. That if you gave two parties similar sets of information, they would reach similar, if not exactly the same, conclusion with that information. Um, and these are kind of the higher bars of rationality that you see, for example, in Furon's bargaining model, where, you know, if everybody had the same set of information, they would reach exactly the same conclusion as to who would win a war and what would be the cost of war and things like this. Um, and maybe I wouldn't go so far as to say that that's really how it works in the real world, that everyone would reach exactly the same conclusion. But I do think that often it's close enough for government work, you know, that that we can approximate what leaders will, what conclusion leaders will come to given some set of information, even though we're not those leaders and we don't have their own kind of internal monologue going on. Uh, so I think there is that that higher bar for rationality that can help guide us in international relations generally. Um, but I'm not going to make a claim that, you know, if you give uh, everybody the, the same set of information, that they're going to reach exactly the same conclusion with that information in the real. OK, so I think that's helpful. And, you know, while you were talking, I mean, it occurred to me that it, it might be actually that irrationality can sometimes fit that. Right. So if you're perceived as uh, perceived as an irrational actor, you know, other other states or other leaders might approach you in a particular way that you actually want. Right. So there's this old sort of you know, madman theory of international politics that basically says under certain conditions, you know, sort of seeming like you're totally irrational or totally crazy, just sort of very unpredictable can actually be a, uh, you know, sort of a benefit to you. And it might actually be a very rational uh, type of, of strategy to take. The other thing I, I wanted to say about this, but the wallet's in my head, I think sometimes people point to particular behaviors in the world or things that they see leaders doing or countries doing that they don't agree with. And they say, oh, that leader or that country is behaving irrationally. And we can have a, we have a lot of examples of this, right? We, we look around and we see countries doing things all the time that we don't think are a good idea or leaders doing things we don't think are a good idea. And it's tempting to say, well, that leader is being irrational. Um, but that's not what I take rationality to mean. What I take rationality to mean is the leader has some goal 
and is acting in pursuit of that goal. It doesn't mean that I agree with the goal that the leader is pursuing, or even that I would go about it in the same way. Um, and so I think there's a temptation to dismiss sometimes what countries are up to or what leaders are up to as irrational, when in fact there's a purpose, there's a, there's a method there, um, and it's just that it's something that we don't necessarily agree with. If, if leaders are behaving in a way that really is irrational in the sense that it doesn't meet my very low bar for purposive or intentionalist behavior, well, then it's really hard to imagine how do you deal with such leaders, right? There's, there's an assumption of rationality, I think, behind most strategy in international relations. If you're trying to think about how are you going to deal with some other country, you kind of have to assume that the leader is at least going to respond to uh, incentives in the world. Otherwise, if leaders are just behaving randomly without a relationship between what they want and how they get there, then there's really no leverage that you have over these leaders. And so in the real world, I think most leaders are behaving with a rationalist assumption towards other leaders. They're just assuming that there are ways that we can influence their behavior. So it's not that they're necessarily doing things we agree with. It's that if we put the right set of incentives out there, that we can have an influence. And that kind of requires a little bit of an assumption of at least this minimal level of rationality. You mentioned the, a bargaining model, sort of the, the standard, you know, James Fearon um, bargaining model. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is and why you think it's useful? No, so I think, I think the bargaining models of war are a great way of focusing our attention on what is the kind of key question of conflict that is easy to miss. Right. And, and I think it's helpful to go back to who Furon is talking to in his original bargaining model conception. And he is talking to primarily realist scholars who already don't believe that individuals are particularly important. Right. And they see kind of states as these billiard balls bouncing around. It doesn't matter what's inside them. And they're proposing these theories of war that have to do with how the international system is structured and how power is divided between countries. And Furon wants to say, they're missing a kind of key component of the of the situation here, that they're they're missing the idea of, okay, yes, these parties have things they want to fight over, but why is it that they couldn't find a solution short of war that everyone would prefer? What leads them away from that bargaining range? And I think this is like an essential question in in understanding conflict in the world. And so I think a bargaining model is really useful primarily for its ability to focus our attention there. Furon, I think, is also talking to those who believe in the individual and misperception as a cause of war and basically saying it may be that people in the world are quite irrational. I think I think Furon wouldn't disagree with that, um, at least according to kind of his strict definition of rationality. I think he would agree that lots of people don't meet that standard for rationality. But what Furon wants to say is, look, before we talk about how mistakes and misperception can lead us into war, we should really establish whether you could get into war, even if we had a rational leader, even if the leaders were behaving with perfect rationality, would we see war in the world? And so the bargaining model is a way of saying, yes, there is a rational path to war. And then once you layer on top of it, all this misperception, all the irrationality that's out there in the real world, well, then we have a real mess, right? So, but before we get there, we need this kind of first step. Even if we had perfectly rational leaders, would we get to war? And he wants to say, yes, we would. Yeah, and I think that's helpful. I mean, there's a lot of uh, folks that are sort of 
I'll call him in my camp, who I think actually uh, sort of misunderstand the, the Führer model quite a bit. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not basically uh, out there saying that this is the only way that, that states end up in war. He's saying that there are very rational reasons why states, states might, might end up in war. And there's other reasons, you know, so it's not, it's not sort of one of these things where he's trying to make a, a broad claim about all wars happen because of, you know, X, Y, Z. So sometimes students will say things like, well, you know, it seems like, you know, identity probably has a lot to do with you know, what's going on in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think James Fear wouldn't agree with that, you know, and I think one of the conditions that he talks about is this idea of indivisibility, right? It's, it's, it's difficult to divide up Jerusalem because of all kinds of different religious and historical and cultural uh, reasons. And so I think he's on, on board with a lot of that. And, and so the nice, nice thing about the model is that it's very parsimonious and it gives us a, a very clear sort of mathematically driven way of understanding how war, you know, it, despite complete rationality, given the sort of thin version that we're talking about here, Despite that rationality, states end up fighting, which I think is, you know, it's a useful addition to literature. Yeah, I think, for, you know, my class just kind of finished talking about the bargaining model and it, we're kind of moving on to more individual level um, explanations for conflict, uh, including misperception. And, and I think um, what upsets my students the most, I got a lot of anger, there's a lot of anger, a lot of anger out there among the students um, and, uh, you know, expressed in very vivid terms in emails to me. Um, and what they're angry about is this rationality assumption. And the, well, there's a lot of things they're angry about. But one of the things they're angry about is this this rationality assumption in the Fira model. And it, it's upsetting. It's upsetting, right? Because they know deep down that people are not like this, right? That we cannot meet the bar that Jim has set for us in in terms of the level of rationality that's required to make this model work. But I want I want to say like that's the level of rationality that's required to make the math underlying the model work. Right. I mean, that's that's what Firon needs to make this all add up and and be seamless and parsimonious and simple. But it doesn't mean that you have to dismiss the entire model if you think, OK, this leader is somewhat less than rational. Right. Um, if there is confusion about where the bargaining range is due to some level of misperception or irrationality because folks are. Uh, risk averse, or they have availability bias, or all of these other kinds of cognitive biases that might factor in, or they're racist, right? We can talk about how that might play in. Um, that doesn't mean that the bargaining model, that the bargaining range no longer exists, right? It means they might find it because of that reason, or they might not be able to find the bargaining range because of this added irrationality or misperception. But it can kind of still point us in the direction of looking for that range and asking, well, why are they missing it, right? If they can't find that bargaining range, is it because of some underlying commitment problem that we can explain perfectly with this rational model? Or is it because of these other things that are kind of layered on top of it? But we don't have to toss the whole thing out. Um, so I, I think that it's important, you know, to keep in mind that even Furon doesn't believe the uh, rationalist assumptions he's making, right? He's doing that for the purpose of the, of the model, to make the model work. Um, but it's a model designed to make a point and the point is, hey, we're looking at the wrong thing. We need to look at why countries can't avoid a, uh, a conflict um, that is inevitably costly and that there is certainly a bargaining range that would keep both parties um, better off if they could avoid war. So why can't they find it? No, I like that. I think that's that that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, to be to be sure, it's it's also the case that some of these um, rationality assumptions that might be a little dubious. So you mentioned a couple of them, right? The, the idea that some people might be risk averse or more risk accepting you know, sort of prospect theory type stuff, those can actually be modeled too, you know, so it's, it's not, I think sometimes people think that 
Um, if you're going to pull out a, a pen and paper and write down a, an equation and explain war that way, you have to be making certain assumptions about how the, the actors act. And, it, and it's based on this very uh, sort of rationalist framework. But you could also do the same exercise if you make other assumptions. So if you, if you make an assumption that, you know, it's going to be difficult for these two sides to find the bargaining range, or you make it so that one side is really risk averse, and the other side is risk accepting, you know, that's stuff that we can, we can think about However, you can think about it, you know, mathematically, you can you can think about it uh, just conceptually or logically, um, and you can think about it empirically. So I think, you know, one of the, the things that's probably a little bit unfair about about the way that people interpret the Fearon model is that he's, he's doing one sort of version of what this bargain might look like. That's not to say you can't do many different types of, of or many different versions of that that bargain and, and bring in all of the things that we've learned from psychology over the last you know several decades about the the sort of stable ways in which people divert from some of the assumptions that that I think especially economists tend to make. I and mean, we haven't really talked about economists here, but um, you know one of the things that I think is a little bit different between the way political scientists think about rationality uh, and the way economists think about rationality is that they are more likely the economists that is. I think to make very strong claims about, you know, sort of the homo economicus, like, you know, rational uh, utilitarian thinker, you know, the guy who's out there trying to you know, maximize his utility um, at basically every decision comes down to, you know, am I better off because of this and, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas I think in political science, we've been much more likely uh, and willing to sort of relax some of that and, and say, no, you know, at the end of the day, you don't need the homo economicus model to be able to, to think about rationality because you you think about it clearly in just goal-driven behavior. We don't need a lot of these things uh, to be true in order for our, our theories to work. And I think that, you know, that is a big difference between us and the, and the crazy economists. You work in the, the kind of sub-subfield of political psychology. There, I think there's a, a lot of attention paid to the individual, maybe because of the psychological roots of, the, of that subfield. I think political psychology approaches in IR are maybe seeing even more attention these days as we kind of absorb some of the findings from behavioral economics generally um, and try to integrate them into a more behavioral view of international relations. And I wonder, like, it, do you see that perspective as intention with a kind of rationalist view uh, uh, of like the bargaining model? Do you reject the bargaining model because it doesn't kind of explicitly take into account some of these political psychological concepts? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think at the moment, um, as we sit here in 2020, the way that, that IR thinks about political psychology is that it's still basically a theory of how individual actors operate. So it's a theory that I think a lot of people would sort of attribute to, you know, decision makers. And we can, we can think about who those people are broadly, but, you know, typically we're talking about heads of state. And so they, they think about, um, political psychology is basically having stuff to say about individual people, but probably not all that much to say about uh, bigger sort of aggregate things that we care about, like states or institutions or, or things like that. So, you know, certainly if we're thinking about, um, you know, the fear on model, for example, something we just talked about, you know, uh, we might say that the actors that matter here are states. And we're sort of thinking about this interaction taking taking place between two hypothetical states, state A and state B. Um, and they they are very rational because they're a state. They're not individuals. They don't have all the all the weird sort of idiosyncrasies that that individuals have. And I think, you know, to be fair, a lot of political psychology has been about uh, individual uh, decision makers and leaders. And I, and I would actually defend that. And I think that's important. You know, one of the things that's, that's happened in international relations, um, you know, basically since the 1970s onward has been this sort of emphasis on structural uh, theory. So we talked about that billiard ball model a second ago. 
you know, all kinds of different, you know, theories about distributions of, of institutions or maybe distributions of ideas. And at every turn, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit surprising to, I think, a lot of students of international relations where individuals just don't come up that much. You know, you just don't really talk about them. Um, and I think the reason for that is because there's this assumption that as you scale up from individual to uh, states, or let's say you want to make even more fine-grained, you know, sort of scaling individuals to offices, to, to, to bureaucracy, to then the state, there's a lot of sort of mysterious stuff that's going on in that process of aggregation that we don't quite well understand. But what we do know is that whatever you end up with at the state is not the same thing as an individual. So you can't, in other words, you can't take the state and reduce it down to the individual. And because of that, you could argue, well, then political psychology doesn't actually tell us a whole lot about, uh, about what's going on in, in, in world politics, right? It's, 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 we care about states and international relations. And uh, if you don't, can't make claims about states, then of what use is psychology? There's two, there's two different things that I think are relevant. The first one is, I think anybody with a, a working you know, uh, frontal lobe understands that some individuals really, truly do matter, right? I mean, I think if we're, if we're looking at the Trump administration today, I think very few people in our world as political scientists would make the argument that Trump just as an individual just does not matter. Now, you, you might say, well, you know, he hasn't, let's think about what he's done from an international relations perspective. He hasn't started, you know, big wars. He hasn't done anything that, that maybe another Republican uh, 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 president might, might do. Um, and, and there may be some truth to that, but I think just sort of intuitively we look at uh, sort of the people of, of world politics and, and, and we think that they have to have something to do with the outcomes, right? Whether we're talking about Hitler or we're talking about Stalin or we're talking about, you know, John F. Kennedy, like if good or bad, like the mistakes that they made or the good things that they've done, um, Ronald Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev, right? So my, my first reaction is I, I don't think any of us sort of uh, truly believe that individuals don't matter at all. I think that the problem has been, number one, getting out of this sort of structural way of thinking, uh, but then also how do you study individuals? It's not clear, right? I mean, one of, the, one of the things with individuals is that they tend to be individualistic, right? In other words, they, they tend to be their own people. Certainly Hitler was his own person, Stalin was his own person, Trump is his own person, Mikhail Gorbachev is his own person. How do you, how do you sort of systematically and in a generalizable way make claims about, about how human beings act and, and the decisions that they're going to make in a, in a predictable way? Seems very difficult to do. Um, and I would agree with that. It is. But, but over the last 20 years, 30 years, as the, as the rise of sort of experimental uh, psychology has gotten going and, and brought into international relations, we've seen a lot of really like, interesting work trying to systematically look at how individuals make, uh, make decisions. And I think a lot of that work probably does apply to, to higher levels. So, you know, it might be the case that college sophomores in a laboratory don't necessarily uh, think about international relations the same way as a president does. But there's, there is actually a lot of work to suggest that, you know, everyday individuals in, in college settings or just people off the street do exhibit the same type of, of biases and um, uh, various heuristics and things like that, that, that leaders and elites uh, do as well. So, so that's, that's part of it. But the other, the other sort of main critique to the, the position that I, I gave a second ago is that I'm actually not all that convinced that, that the, the state and individuals are all that different. So um, there's been a, several sort of claims about as you aggregate up levels of, of organization that biases somehow go away, right? And the idea is like, if, well, if we have five people in a room, every one of them might be biased, but somehow magically when you put them together, bias just sort of dissipates. And I've always been uh, somewhat suspect of that. And I think I've been suspect of that for, for largely empirical reasons, where you think about um, whether the, the type of you know, group think that occurs uh, in small, small offices of the Department of Defense, or you think about you know, some of the, what we know about 
let's say the Bay of Pigs invasion or or the war in Iraq, right? There were there there are moments in time where you you look at a group of individuals and say it doesn't seem like they're they're really sort of washing away all the cognitive biases. It seems like if anything, actually there might be biases that are exacerbated by the fact that you you have group group sort of work going on. So I think that's that's part of it. But then the other part is that we've we've now have experimental and empirical research on exactly this this question. So there's been this big sort of debate as to whether or not you know the, the wisdom of the crowds indeed is you know more. Uh, rational or, or you know, sort of uh, careful in their thinking than, than individuals, and it's it's not clear quite yet. But there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest actually it doesn't seem like they they do a whole lot better. Whether it's uh, you know, it might be the case that if, that groups do better on things like uh, mathematical tasks and sharing information and and sort of problem solving where there's a a sort of discrete set of solutions and, and people kind of put their heads together and they figure things out more quickly. And so groups might be good for that type of thing. But when it comes to these sort of like unstructured types of problems where there's no, you know, sort of easy answer, there's no correct answer necessarily. Groups have to make decisions about the use of force, for example. It's not obvious that they are uh, not displaying the same biases that, that individuals do. But there, there's some evidence to, to, to show that at least in small groups, um, what you get is basically the, the biases uh, persisting and kind of sticking through that level of aggregation. Now, to be fair, a small group is very different than a state. And so it's, it's, it is true that moving up to the state level, uh, there might be other things going on. But at, at least going individual to small group, uh, the evidence that I've seen suggests that these biases can, can continue to stick around. One of the projects I've been working on actually studies this question by, by doing a little simple experiment. So we talked a second ago about how there's these uh, sort of psychological things that go on when people make decisions. One of them is called prospect theory. There's also something called the intentionality bias where, you know, it's, it's, it's actually kind of fascinating. If, if bad things happen, people assume it was intentional. And if, if good things happen, they assume it's sort of like luck or whatever. So if you give, if you give people a, you know, a question of like a, a ship sank and the 500 people died, uh, in one in one condition, and then the other condition, the ship sank, but no one died. They're more likely to think that because 500 people died, it was it was intentional. So what we do is we we examine the sort of response to these types of scenarios through across a, a number of different cognitive biases uh, in three different conditions. So in, and there's an individual condition where the the person is just you know filling out this this survey, uh, answering these questions by themselves, and then we have two group conditions. One is a, is a what we call a horizontal group, which basically means we, we put people together and we say you have to make a decision, but we don't give them any uh, sort of rules on how they make that decision. They just have to come up with a, a consensus. And then in another group, we have a hierarchical group where one of the individuals is, uh, is labeled as the leader. And so they ultimately make the decision, but the other people act as advisors. And so what we're testing here basically, and it's a very simple sort of design, do we see any differences between these groups with respect to the decisions they make? Um, and, you know, more specifically, do they exhibit uh, the bias uh, in the group conditions? And our initial results suggest that they do. So in actually both the hierarchical and in the horizontal groups, they exhibit the same uh, biases that the, the individuals do. Um, there's some subtle differences. And you might imagine that uh, group composition, for example, makes a difference. And it does. So, you know, there's, there's going to be a difference if one group is predominantly of, of one gender versus another. Things like experience seem to matter. So if, if um, some of the group members have more work experience and have been a lot around a little bit longer, they're less likely to exhibit some of these biases. So there, there are lots of different sort of uh, pieces of variation that we can look at. But as a general rule across these, these different conditions, it turns out that groups are exhibiting um, basically the same biases that, that individuals do. Now, why I think this is important is because it gets to that, that critique that's often made about behavioral international relations, which is, you know, you guys are telling me a lot about how individuals work. 
Um, that's great, but decisions at the state level are not made by individuals, they're made by groups. So if we can show that a lot of the things that we've been talking about with respect to individuals also happen to, to be the case in groups, uh, I think that'll, that'll be an important finding. And then the last thing I'll say about that is, it might be the case that states make decisions, but if you look at how uh, those, what, what it means to make a state decision, we're often talking about uh, you know, a president with an executive committee, we're talking about um, you know, a, a small handful of, of people. So sometimes state decision-making, I think people think you know, big sort of aggregate structure. Uh, and, and while it's true that the, the president and that, that small committee has a number of forces working on them, um, it's, it's often, the time, often the case that these decisions are actually made by a relatively small group of, of people. So, Jeff, I mean, I think one last question I have for you uh, is how a rationalist would think about this, this question. So I, I've sort of made the case um, that individuals matter quite a bit and their, their individual psychologies and personalities, cognitive biases, things like that, uh, probably play a pretty big role in, in some of the things that we've seen uh, in international politics. But I'm wondering how you approach this question. So you, you said a, a few minutes ago that, you know, you, you sort of take um, individuals seriously, I think, to a certain extent. So how how do you approach the question of how individuals matter? Yeah, so I'm not willing to say that that individual individuals don't matter at all, right? That we should kind of um, dismiss all all the stories about particular people doing particular things. Um, but I do think that individuals make better stories than stories about the underlying strategic interests of states. And for that reason, these are more interesting stories about how this one person came into this negotiation and saved the day. Um, those are better stories than ones about how, well, you know, they ultimately would have found this agreement regardless because the underlying incentives of the situation were such and such. Um, and because of that, we tend to latch on to these stories about individuals um, because they, they seem somehow more appealing to us. Um, I used to work in government. Um, I was involved in, the, uh, in working on Iran's nuclear program for many years. And so I know a lot of I kind of left left off, um, that, that position before the Iran nuclear deal really got going. But uh, I know a lot of the folks who were involved in negotiating the Iran nuclear deal. And, you know, they'll say, hey, you know, this this uh, negotiation was really stalled. We were having a lot of trouble. And then we brought in the uh, then Secretary of Energy, Ernie Muniz, to talk to his Iranian counterpart. And since they were both physicists, they could really... Um, talk to each other in their own weird physics language so that they could um, they, they could look across the table and, you know, really have a connection and talk about how they were going to deal with all these technical problems. And um, yeah, maybe maybe that's maybe that's what saved the day, right? That that Ernie was available and we could press him into service. He's got this great hair. Um, and maybe that was it. Maybe that did it. But it's also possible that, yeah, we could have found some other physicist to talk to the, the Iranian counterpart that, you know, is it really like if, if Ernie had had the flu, if he had been incapacitated, would we really have no Iran deal to, to, to make of all of these thousands of people hours of, of negotiation and preparation and work and uh, state level emphasis across, uh, you know, seven countries that, that went into this deal? Does it really come down to whether Secretary Muniz was available that day to come to the negotiation? And I, I want to say probably not. You know, the the whoever was put in that role would have had the same team giving them the same briefing books, making the same arguments, 
um, the, the same talking points or very similar, and those people are fairly interchangeable as well, having, having been one of those people. That's, you know, a lot of people could do that job. So, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to point to, we, we tend to focus on these great leaders and there's like a mythology that, that comes up around them. But I, I tend to think that often it's the structure of the situation that's driving things. It's, it's the kind of underlying strategic interests of states more than it is whether, you know, Ernie had his coffee that morning and was ready to go for those negotiations. I hate to pick on uh, Secretary Muniz, who's a, who's a great guy. But um, yeah, so I, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical of the great leader uh, view of international relations for that reason, that, that all the other stuff, if you hold all the other stuff conf, uh, constant, I would think you would get largely the same, maybe not exactly, but largely the same results. You know, I, I think the the way I look at this is is you know clearly both. I mean, this is a little bit of a cop out, but clearly both matter, right? In the sense that a lot of the examples we've talked about, whether it's uh, the Iran nuclear deal, I think we could throw in you know big big things like you know uh, Cuban Missile Crisis or end of the Cold War. You know, it's clearly the structural situation, um, the economics of the situation. All of these things matter, and and some of these things might sort of open windows or close doors for agreement. Um, they might sort of present opportunities for leaders to step in and and uh, and be able to come to an agreement. And so I don't think you can really, you know, take take a, a fully sort of plausible understanding of of something in history without you know taking both of these into account. And I think we we probably agree um, more or less on on that point. Can I can I just add two two other things, Jeff, before we we close here? Oh sure, we, we I feel like we haven't heard from you much at all. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Let me just say a couple more things. So the, the first is uh, one of the points I wanted to bring up that that. Professor Kaplow here touched on a second ago, which I think is is relevant to the conversation, is that leaders are are incredibly biased, and not in the way that we've talked about so far, which is their sort of cognitive uh, biases, but rather their view of their own importance. So you know, if you if you go back and look at, at diplomatic history, it's it is full of of leaders just basically saying that they're the ones that made the difference. You know, they walked in and and they got the job done because they're just such a great negotiator. Now it happens to be the case that our our current president, I think, is. Uh, sort of exemplifies that par excellence. But this is not just Trump. I mean, this has been uh, sort of a truism throughout, uh, you know, I don't know, 20th century anyway, leaders kind of inflating their their importance. Um, and the, the tricky thing, of course, is that that doesn't mean they weren't important, but but it, we sometimes fall into the trap, I think, of, of believing them uh, somewhat uncritically. And so one of the things I, I tell my students when they're thinking about to what extent individuals might have mattered in a particular instance is to try to triangulate the evidence a little bit. So, you know, the, the fact that Ronald Reagan says he was important to ending the Cold War, that's one piece of information, right? But there's other pieces of information that are likely very relevant as well. And, you know, you sort of take everything uh, with a grain of salt and, and sort of stack it up against each other and, and see what hypotheses uh, have support and what don't. But it, if we relied only on the things that leaders uh, were saying about themselves, uh, we would probably have a very uh, sort of individualistic view of, of who matters uh, in international relations. The other, just one little small uh, piece that I think is relevant for the, the question about rationality, there's something in um, international relations that we, we used to talk a lot about, we don't really talk about in these terms anymore, this idea of rational choice, this sort of idea that, you know, when decision makers make uh, decisions, they, they're sort of, you know, we, we talk about sort of logic of consequences in international relations, this idea that they're sort of evaluating the costs and benefits of what they do, and they go and they, they make decisions based on that. Uh, and of course, there's other logics of how it, you know, states make decisions, the logic of appropriateness, logic of habit, whatever. But what's interesting about rational choice in particular, and, and, I, and I, I, I want to make sure students sort of understand the, the history of how this develops. There's this great book that um, David Lake and 
Bob Powell wrote, Strategic Choice in International Relations. And in the last chapter of that book, there's this chapter by uh, Arthur Stein. And one of the points that he makes is that, you know, rational choice as a, as a sort of enterprise never was developed as a model of how people actually make decisions. It was, it was developed as a model of how they should make decisions. And so it was sort of developed in this like normative kind of, kind of side as opposed to an analytical side. And somehow along the way, that normative sort of commitment uh, to rational choice sort of got lost. And I think it's just worth sort of recovering every once in a while to say, you know, and it, it harkens back to the very first things we started talking about on this, this episode, which is, you know, rationality, we can define it many different ways. But the idea that, that people always make decisions in particular uh, contexts in particular ways never was, was true. And no one actually ever believed it was true. Uh, it was developed as a way to, to sort of get decision makers to be more rational. And, and I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes it, it becomes uh, an, a sort of assumption that we make about how people, people live. Um, and make decisions that just, you know, never was, never was right. So I just want to make sure students sort of understand that point as well. Great points, Marcus. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. Marcus, thanks so much again for, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. And uh, thanks, everyone. We'll, we'll see you next time. So uh, there's water in our attic coming in between like the, the, it looks like the flashing between the chimney and maybe the roof, like the, and it's just, it's not a lot of water. Like the, the description made it sound a lot worse. I mean, it, it is, there is water in there and it is now dripping into the bedroom because it's going through, you know, there's no floor in the attic really. It's just those boards and just kind of. Can you like get a bucket up there and. Uh... Yeah, we have a bucket and some towels and stuff, but. I mean, it, um... that's how our, our roof just leaks when it rains. It's because, um. We have we always we have like stuff up there, you know, like like uh, leaves and branches and dead squirrels yeah. and whatever. And the water gets trapped <laughs> and uh, I never go up on the roof and clear it, you know, because that's dangerous. Yeah. So does it come into your like it's your like the, your living room? So we get we get a leak from it in our sunroom um, around the around two of the lights comes in. And one of these days we're just going to have to replace the roof. But uh yeah, I don't want yeah, to do been, like avoiding that. So when it starts raining, Arthur like runs to the closet and gets the bucket and like brings <laughs> the bucket and puts it right where it goes underneath the lights. He's such a such a helpful child. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean that's the pro- I I just this house ownership stuff is for the birds. Yeah. Maybe you should you should close with that. That'd be great. <laughs>